Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by Public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to episode six of The Brainstorm. I'm Sam Corris, joined by Nick Groose. We'll keep throwing the fingers up until we, we go past 10. Then we'll we'll cooperate here and figure out what's the right thing to do. Today, we're talking about SEC versus Ripple. We're circling back to threads again and changes that we're seeing on threads and Twitter. And then lastly, we, we listened to your comments a lot of people want to talk about space, so we'll dive into what's happening in the space ecosystem. Uh, we're lucky to be joined by ARK's uh, crypto lead here, Yassine. What can you tell us about SEC versus Ripple? Thanks for having me, guys. I'm uh, excited to be here. SEC's case against Ripple, I think it's really interesting because initially it was thought of as, a, wow, this is a huge win for crypto. Um, and it's black and white. The SEC basically lost against Ripple, uh, against Ripple, and it turns out there's a little bit more nuance. Uh, but g- we'll give you the the brief rundown. After two years of waiting, we had a district judge that issued a summary judgment in this SEC case against Ripple that accused Ripple of selling unregistered securities. Um, and so it isn't totally black and white in terms of the outcome, but it it does still appear to be a net win for crypto. The judge basically uh, gave out sort of two main takeaways. The first is that they agreed on one hand with the SEC that Ripple's early private token sales to institutional investors constituted an unregistered securities offering. Uh, And this judgment was based on uh, meeting the criteria of the Howey test, which uh, defines an investment contract. Um, But on the other hand, uh, the, the judge sided with Ripple uh, regarding other token transactions where she ruled that Ripple's sale on public exchanges and even their use of XRP for employee compensation didn't meet the Howey test. Uh, so what, what to make of both of these claims? It basically implies that the XRP token itself or the underlying crypto asset itself is an investment contract, but that the circumstances surrounding the offering of the token 
would determine whether or not it's an investment contract. And so this is, I'd say, a, a net win specifically for exchanges, uh, for XRP. Uh, I, I, I'd, I'd assume that the, the SEC will likely appeal because the court's decision didn't really set a precedent that other courts must follow. Uh, and so you might see an appeal and, and this might be sort of a, a one-off, but say all, all things considered, this is a win for crypto. Yassin, before we move forward with the case itself and you know maybe some of the implications for the broader market, can you just explain what the Howey test is? Sure. So the Howey test uh, is effectively, um, I don't exactly know when, but the Supreme Court established four criteria to determine whether an investment contract exists, and they've defined that investment contract. And so in the case of crypto, what they effectively do is they go uh, through through each of the criteria and they, uh, they effectively um, determine whether or not the specific asset fits the Howey test. So the four criteria at a high level is, you know, is it, is it, are you actually in investing with money? Uh, is it in a shared or common enterprise? Is there uh, an expectation of profit? And um, can it be derived from the effort of others? Uh, in the case of um, in, in the case of the, the the first decision, which was that the institutional inve investors that were um, in, investing in the private token sale that constituted an unregistered securities offering, uh, effectively it met each of those four criteria. Uh, and in the case of the latter, where it was um, listed on exchanges, the buyers and sellers of those exchanges. Um, didn't necessarily or couldn't necessarily identify whether Ripple was selling it uh, with the expectation of profit or as an investment. And therefore, uh, on, on the latter case, it failed the Howey test and was uh, could not be deemed uh, an investment contract. Gotcha. And then I have, I have two questions here. One, you said summary judgment. So, you know, what both both sides are going to appeal. How final is this is the first one. And then the second for that initial sale, how does this play out with all of the VC funds that got, you know, they essentially took the token and then turned around and sold it on exchanges? Is this kind of clearing the way for that type of behavior? Yeah. So for for the first question, um, which was I, I forgot what the first question was actually. Summary was judgment. Our, our yeah, this was summary judgment. Are, are oh, yeah, people well, going to appeal it? Oh, the summary judgment. Yeah. So this is a. This this was kind of alluding to the first point of the court's decision didn't set a precedent. So it was a single judge um, that that basically um, was analyzing this case and, and gave her opinion. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily set a precedent. And the appeal, you might see a reversal of the appeal. That being said, and I think what a lot of people are um, are recognizing is that it's really calling into question the recent views from the SEC. Uh, and if you see what Gensler is saying now, the vast majority uh, that, that the vast majority of digital assets are securities. Uh, you know this this puts into question the, that that very fact. And so I think again, as I was alluding to earlier, it is a net net benefit for exchanges that are li listing all all of these uh, so called securities. And then for the second question, can you repeat the second question? Yeah, sorry, sorry to overwhelm you with the no uh, double double up there. Uh, yeah. What does it mean for the VCs and the uh, VC funds who took crypto yeah. as part of the investment yeah. and then turned around and sold it at a much higher price to uh, kind of just everyday retail investors yeah. through exchanges? I mean, 
I think I don't know if there are direct implications. There are questions on whether or not, it, you know, if they are deemed unregistered securities, whether there are some clawbacks, which would really, really uh, affect a, a lot of the VCs that indeed participate in these token sales. I think, you know, moving forward, if a case like this, um, you know, is sort of generalizable, then you'll likely see uh, a move away from VCs participating directly in private token sales and waiting for them to hit exchanges. Uh, but the implications, I think, for crypto are quite positive, because if you think about sort of what defines broadly a decentralized network, issuance is a huge component, uh, specifically around the, the fair issuance. So you compare something like Bitcoin, uh, which didn't really get any, uh, didn't really sell Bitcoin in the early days to VCs to what we're seeing now. Um, they replicate, they, they, they resemble pseudo equities much more they than they resemble these native assets on these public blockchain networks. So it's unclear exactly what the answer is, but I think that at the very least, it'll kind of discipline the process uh, that will prove to be beneficial for, for the ecosystem long term. And when it comes to how the ecosystem proceeds, now that you have this ruling out there, yeah. are, you know, is the community looking at past token issuances of other cryptos and saying, okay, we might have trouble here, this one's in the clear. What what is the broader implications for some of the other tokens out there? You mentioned Bitcoin, yeah. but is there now just clear, you know, lines of this is okay and this is not okay? You mentioned there's not yeah. a precedent, but I'm curious. Yeah. That's a great question. I think for the most part, there is still a question of every asset is going to be um, looked at on a case-by-case -case situation. I think part of that is really the SEC's existing regulation by enforcement. There is no framework that the SEC can um, you know, reliably refer to uh, to create sort of blanket uh, claims on broader asset buckets. They have to go to each asset one by one. But the public is looking at this as, look, if Ripple is not, you know, clearly a security, then the 13 securities, whether it's a Solana, an Aave, a Cardano, um, they, they can't possibly be securities. Now, again, there's not very much legal basis behind this analysis. It's really more of a common sense smell test where if there was any asset that was going to be deemed clearly a security, it would be an asset like Ripple. The fact that that is, has been now put into question, I think, will be a tremendous, uh, you know, positive surprise for for the crypto ecosystem. And you've seen how you know the coin bases of the world have even responded to that. Outside of you know just broader um, you know uh, promise on to the on exchanges and and their positioning in the market, you saw you know 24 hours after the major exchanges ended up relisting XRP. Um, so XRP wasn't even listed on these major exchanges. Um, in the face of this court battle, uh, and now that we have some clarity, uh, they're they're back in the game. So it's gr great to see. Nice. And I feel like you know we've said this before, but regulatory clarity is good for the space broadly, and it's good to see the judicial system here uh, putting some some of its own takes on what the SEC has been doing, which has kind of just been on their own. Yassine, thank you for joining us. Thank and, you, guys. And, uh, you know, from your, from your lips to God's ears, we'll, we'll have you back on to, uh, <laughs> to evaluate to as we one. progress towards that. Awesome. And, Nick, now on to you. Threads and Twitter. I, what I love about this space is 
everyone's uh, so extreme and things happen so quickly. One day it's Twitter is dead. The next day it's, oh my God, I can't believe Twitter is giving people $30,000. This is the right move. So what's, can you frame it for everyone and, and tell us what's going on? Yeah. Well, I, I go back to the question you asked last week was, is this a binary event? And you know, the answer to many still seems to be yes, as in, you know, one will succeed and the other will fail. And, you know, last time we spoke, people were pointing at threads succeeding and Twitter was failing. And now it seems like that's flipped on its head and Twitter succeeding and threads is failing. And so the incremental news here is there is a, a firm called Sensor Tower. They do third party data. People have you know gotten into the data, started looking at threads, daily active users and engagement numbers. And yes, it's only been a week or two. So take this with a grain of salt. But, you know, the numbers are down. Um, if you look at the daily active users um, on Tuesday and Wednesday of last week, they were down around 20% from Saturday. Time spent was also down by 50%. I found a chart showing kind of this decline in the, the time spent on, on threads, and it seems to have declined even more than 50% from its high around 20, 20 minutes. Um, it now seems to be trending below 10 minutes. And then on the flip side, you have, um, you have Elon Musk and Twitter, I think responding in a really smart way, and that is uh, fulfilling the promise around creator monetization opportunities. Back in February, Elon promised that you know, they would begin as a platform to, shart, to, to start to share uh, ad revenue with, with, uh, with creators that met um, some, some criteria. The criteria, it seems to be around, uh, you need 5 million impressions per month for at least three consecutive months. Um, you also need to have a Twitter Blue account, which costs you $8. But you know, given the payout opportunities, that is pretty insignificant. Um, you mentioned 30000 and there's plenty of creators that were actually very much willing to show how much Twitter had paid them. One interesting note, if you do or have seen those payouts, uh, very careful, I think it, it needs to be expressed that that was backdated all the way to February. So Twitter was making good on that promise back in February. Um, so they paid out for multiple months in one single uh, you know, check or you know, I think it just went through Stripe and the clearinghouse behind uh, Twitter's payment service. Um, but if you look at the numbers right now, what we're seeing is Twitter is paying creators around one cent per every 1,000 um, impressions, which is, I think, a pretty good starting point. And, you know, when you're getting cleared checks in the thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know that you can really complain. And I think from a strategy perspective, this is a great way to hold on to creators, given that you now have this competitor in threads breathing down your neck. And, you know, it's not just the ad monetization, right? There's the subscription, you direct monetization. I imagine these individuals who have Twitter Blue who are, you know, doing millions of impressions a month probably also have that subscription feature enabled. It does seem like a pretty fun environment to be a creator on. How does this change your outlook for threads? Uh, does it or is it is it kind of just a, you know, this is an interesting development. We still need to wait and see. Yeah, I, I'm still in the wait and see mode, but I do want to point out uh, two pieces of evidence or maybe two analogies that we can use to kind of judge this time period. On the engagement side, I was uh, reminded of a story I heard about uh, Blockbuster and Netflix back when Blockbuster was going to roll out a streaming service. Um, and I think what is really interesting when you look at this threads and Twitter debate, if you go on Google search trends, and obviously this isn't a perfect metric, 
you've you've seen the decline in threads but what you didn't see in twitter's numbers or the search trending for twitter was a big spike in twitter search trends when threads launch which i would have thought would have been the case and this is you know getting back to the why is he talking about blockbuster and netflix when blockbuster launched or when they went out to launch their streaming service everyone knew what blockbuster was and so they wanted to go out with a splashy marketing campaign and the way that they did that they ran a super bowl ad uh, what ended up happening, if you look at the numbers from that Super Bowl ad, it ended up benefiting Netflix 10 times more than Blockbuster. Obviously, we know how that story ended. Um, but I find it interesting that, you know, in this period of time, when you have this competitor that, you know, is a copycat, um, we're, we're now in the Clone Wars. I was I, I heard that uh, term. I think it's pretty great to describe, um, you know, how meta operates. It's, it's the Clone Wars that we're operating in. Um, but you know, I would have thought to see, uh, some, some increased trending on, uh, you know, Google search. Um, I guess I, you know, you can kind of point to Elon mentioned there was a week over week increase of around 3.5% in total user time spent on the platform. I would have thought it would have been more. Um, so it is interesting how these two, um, platforms are still operating in kind of different silos and different use cases. So that's, you know, one thing that gives me pause and says, this is maybe still too early to make a call. There's so much room. There's so much that these platforms are going after. I, I still, you know, if I had to make a claim, I think both survive and thrive. Um, we just need to give it time to, to really understand where the opportunities will be for each of the platforms. Yeah. And anecdotally, my threads time has uh, gone to close to zero. I don't think I'm representative of the uh, the world out there, given that I'm a, a Twitter Twitter power user and barely use Instagram. But yeah. uh, that's definitely been the, the case for me. And, you know, I'm just looking for content. I definitely don't follow the right people. They still haven't, you know, rolled out all of the features. Uh, but for me, I'm, I definitely feel what those metrics show. Yeah. And the, I... I mentioned that I had two points on this. The other point, um, it was just slipping my mind, but uh, is on the monetization side. You know, the creator fund or allowing ad revenue to flow to creators now and offer these subscription services, I think is the absolute right path for Twitter. We've seen a number of different uh, platforms do this. When TikTok wanted to go international, they put you know up a billion dollars in a creator fund, and it operated very much in the same manner. You needed to meet a certain criteria, you needed to post regularly, and then you got a cut of the advertising that was flowing on the platform. One thing to note with these creator funds or these advertising funds is you know the money can potentially dry up in you know bad scenarios um, or if you're just giving out more than you are taking in and you know subsidizing which I think some of these companies have I don't think we can make the claim that Twitter's doing that um, but Elon did tweet out last week you know he gives us so much information on this platform it's part of the draw right. Um, but he did tweet out that uh, Twitter is still uh, free cash flow negative, and they didn't see the advertising dollars rebound in June when they thought they would. So, you know, it's something to, uh, you know, are they getting ahead of themselves by paying out creators because they needed to? Or is, you know, I, it's something to think in terms of longevity here. That's just one thing. I'm not making the claim that this money is going to dry up. I think if you look at YouTube and the success that they've had with their creator monetization program on advertising, it can be executed and it can be something that is a big, big draw for creators. Um, but just wanted to throw that that uh, thought out there as well. 
Yeah. And I think having it as a ad share aligns incentives and gives you that longevity exactly. as opposed to saying, you know, here's a set billion dollars, you know, see how much of it Mr. Beast can soak up <laughs> as fast right. as possible. Right. Yeah. The TikTok fund, I haven't heard much on that. I know, you know, you can still make a decent amount of money on TikTok, but that creator fund, uh, I think has since, you know, I don't know that they're throwing around billions of dollars anymore. Let's, let's just say that. Great. Any, any last points here or should we move on to, uh, space no i'm sure we'll be back next week for threads part three maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll have to give it a uh, you know a breather next week and come back in a in two months we can't just be uh too tied to this on the short-term news cycle we gotta be true to what we're saying and say you know yes it's too early to call but now i think we've given enough information on both sides to really understand how this might play out over the next few months so maybe we'll come back at the end of summer and talk about where these two platforms are sounds good so then we'll move on to space. A lot of people commenting they want space content, and we're we're here to deliver. We do a lot of space research, a lot going on in the space economy, um, and so I'll I'll kind of just give a smattering of recent events and what's going on, how we think about it, and then as time goes on, we'll dive into kind of different topics. Uh, so what's happening in space right now? SpaceX, obviously, the biggest uh, lightning rod for media attention and the biggest innovator, I think, in the space economy. So we'll start there. They, you know, are apparently valued at $150 billion after some secondary shares were sold. Um, They recently also just launched the same Falcon 9 rocket for the 16th time. Originally, they were saying they were going to just do this 10 times. Now they're saying, you know, they'll do it 20 I'm sure they're going to continue to push the envelope here. Um, on that reusability, I do want to pull up a chart here and kind of talk about this. It is crazy to me that they're doing this so regularly and no one else has done this, right? So it's been, I think, like seven years now. And it's not no one's doing this at the same price that they can. It's they've done something and they're doing it perfectly. And no one else has, has even accomplished this which is pretty insane in my opinion. And so if we look at this chart here, uh, this is showing the refurbishing rockets and the time to do so. And so when SpaceX first did this in 2017, it took them roughly a year to do this. Uh, In 2022, they got this down to 21 days for the fastest time ever. And so if we're looking and we're doing our research correctly here, um, if you take the amount of time that it took for that first one to the amount of time it took for this most recent one or the fastest one in in 21 days, we think that they can refurbish the Falcon 9 for roughly a million dollars, which is pretty profound when you're looking at uh, launch costs and costs declining there. And so another fun fact here, Nick, I'll throw this out there. They've launched every roughly four and a half days this year. Right. I don't think people even appreciate how how fast this is happening. Um, and then what else happened this week? So much stuff is going on. You had two rocket engines actually explode in testing. Um, one of those was Blue Origins BE4. Another one was uh, JAXA. So Japan, they were test firing a second stage engine, which exploded during testing. Uh, you had Viasat who sent up a satellite, which malfunctioned. 
Uh, and so that was a, a big impact there. But then maybe just taking a step back and looking at the space economy and what we think is going on. Nick, jump in. Yeah, I have, I have a question before yeah. we get too deep in the weeds on the other space news. You mentioned, you know, SpaceX is, is lead in this race. Um, why do you think they have such an advantage? Why is they're not even a close second? And then also my second question is, if you had to point the finger at uh, another company and say, you know, this is runner up, um, even though it's, you know, miles behind, who would it be? Yeah, so, you know, why are they so ahead? You know, Elon's been kind of driving the company and they've been doing what everyone said was impossible. And so I think that gave them uh, a lot of room uh, I mean, there's a huge runway and head start in 2015, I think it was maybe 2016 or 17, you know, you had CEOs of other space companies saying, we've looked at reusability, it's not economic. And so if you have every other company out there saying, you know, this isn't interesting. And then all of a sudden, you know, SpaceX goes and proves that it is, you know, that's a, that's a big head start there. So it's definitely not an easy task. They were tackling something everyone else had kind of written off. Um, and I think it is kind of the ethos of his companies, which is just, you know, you can have a moat, but you just need to keep innovating quickly. And that's the mm -hmm. best moat. Uh, when we look at, you know, who's next in line, you know, China, I would say, has been very aggressive in their space capability. You know, they've got some companies that are trying to replicate the Falcon 9 landing. In the US, you know, we look at companies like Rocket Lab and, you know, they're originally they were trying to reuse rockets by, you know, having the stage parachute down, catch it with a helicopter, bring it back to land. Uh, now they're just saying, oh, you know, when it splashes down in the water, it's actually not that damaged and we can design for that and we can reuse it. And so that's something to look at. Uh, but I think this actually gets to a bigger point that I was going to get to anyway. And it's, you know, there's this big question, is the launch business even interesting? And I think, you know, in our opinion, it's super important. And it's a key enabler. Uh, but it's not like a, wow, you can ro launch a rocket, even though it's incredibly difficult. Uh, we don't think the economics are like, that amazing for rocket launch providers. And so you have dozens of these small launch providers. Uh, and to us, that's much less interesting than the services that you can do once you're in space, once you have a constellation, um, maybe even the verticals where you can use those applications as well. Right. So when we look at SpaceX, it's obviously incredible that they have a reusable rocket that they can use 16 times. They can launch every four and a half days. Um, but what's really exciting from them is Starlink and this global connectivity play and the type of margins and business model that you could get off of that if you reach scale without going bankrupt. And that's kind of always something to keep in mind with space companies. That's great framing. Yeah, I had never really heard you say that before. Maybe I wasn't fully paying attention in the, in the actual brainstorm, but I, I like that framing as in, you know, the added services on top of the launch capabilities is where the real, um, opportunity and growth pr prospects could lead to. Um, yeah. Anything else, Sam? 
No, I, I mean, I think that's the point. You know, one of the questions people always ask is, is there price elasticity of demand for rocket launches, right? And, and so just in basic terms, it's if you lower launch costs, does that mean more satellites are going to be launched? Um, and it's really unclear at this point. It's definitely true for individual companies that are driving their own demand, right? So it's like, who's who's launching on SpaceX rockets every four and a half days? It's mainly SpaceX, right? They're launching their Starlink constellation up there. Uh, and you have a lot of these small launch companies out there whose whole business premise is essentially, no, there's this huge amount of demand out there that's waiting for low launch costs and that that's a sustainable demand, not just kind of a boom bust environment. And, and that's something that remains to be seen. But I, you know, we're incredibly optimistic on the space economy to say a, a word that I, I feel like is a buzzword that's kind of been beaten to death, the space economy. Uh, but it, it, it is super exciting. And it's one of those areas where I find it particularly exciting because there are so many things happening that people said were impossible and now they're possible. And it's not just, uh, you know, one person doing it. It's like everyone's on board with it now. Right. Yeah. So, you know, astronauts are being launched on reusable rockets. That was never going to happen. Um, you were never going to have satellites that could go directly to an existing smartphone. Now you've got, you know, five companies out there that are saying they can do it and are executing on it currently. Um, so it is amazing to see the impossible come true and, you know, market opportunities are large and growing if it goes from impossible to something. So that's kind of like that zero to one. It's the final frontier, the final frontier <laughs> and the final topic of today. Um, thank you all again for uh, listening in. We appreciate it. Hopefully, Sam, I have actually one, one last question. We'll wrap on this. When is the next Starlet, Starship launch? Oh, that's that's a good question. I think, to be honest, I don't know. I, I think that they need to get some clearance. Um, they've done the construction to the pad to make it uh, functional. I don't know if you saw any of those photos from the, the previous launch. They really yeah, did a great job of destroying it. Uh, so it sounds like that's been repaired and SpaceX is moving, you know, extremely quickly. I think they need to get clearance, but I would hope within the next few months that they'll be able to do it. Uh, and then also again, next week I'll have the microphone so I can sound as smooth and, and buttery as you, Nick. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for, for listening in. That's our show. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.